Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us on this game day for both football and the Federal Reserve. France and Morocco hoping for everlasting World Cup acclaim. Croatia, we England fans especially truly feel your pain. And from the U.S. Central Bank, a softer economic landing remains its aim. The hope is today's rate hike will be a little more tame. It truly is a waiting game for both Fed watchers and game watchers today. The World Cup semi-final match and today's Fed action beginning at exactly the same moment, 2 p.m. Eastern time, five hours from now. In the meantime, U.S. futures, little change to Europe. Stocks are softer, as you can see slightly there as we wait. It follows U.S. gains, though, on Tuesday and a positive zone tone set across Asia. So a little unchanged here for the U.S. stock market futures. A less aggressive harp. Half point Fed hike appears a virtual certainty, especially after Tuesday's softer consumer inflation read. But a lot, of course, is riding on rate projections for next year, which will also be released. Similarly, inflation information from the UK too. Price rises there, easing from 41 year highs to a year over year rate of under 11% last month. That's still a huge ouch. But fresh fresh price hikes for food and drinks at restaurants and pubs. World Cup gatherings have clearly been taking a bite out of budgets later in the show. We'll also hear from the largest restaurant chain in the world. That's Yum Brands. So think KFC and Pizza Hut. The CEO, David Gibbs, will join us to talk about the global inflation challenge and their growth plans plans too. We spoke Tuesday at the New York Stock Exchange, as you can see there. Also today, Sam Bankman-Fried, former FTX chief, has been denied bail in the Bahamas and is set to remain in custody until February. All this after a damning hearing into the FTX collapse on Capitol Hill Tuesday, with the current head of the firm calling the scandal a case of, quote, plain old embezzlement. The U.S. Senate kicks off its FTX hearing one hour from now. And the probe into who on Capitol Hill benefited from millions of dollars in FTX political donations is just getting started. With apologies to Shakespeare, Sam Bankman-Fried, what a tangled web he allegedly weaved. Much more on this story in just a few moments. But first, Ukraine suffering a new wave of drone attacks on the capital, Kyiv. But President Zelensky says air defence systems prevented further damage to the power grid. Will Ripley is in Kyiv with all the latest. People were woken up to the sound of explosions in the early morning hours here in Kyiv, in central Kyiv, actually, a short distance from where I'm standing. Some people were up already and getting ready for work when they heard that that very, very uh, distinctive sound of the drone engines followed by explosions. Uh, one of the drones actually caused, uh, uh, you know, a huge hole in the side of a building. There was damage. People had their apartment windows shattered. And yet, remarkably, the Ukrainian military says that in this drone attack, 
on uh, Kiev, the first in a number of weeks uh, here in the central area. Uh, there has been uh, no significant damage to the power grid on top of what they're already dealing with. There are rolling blackouts continuously uh, affecting people who live here in Kiev and affecting people who live all over Ukraine. The power grid is far from stable. It's going to be quite some time uh, as crews continue to work to try to repair these facilities that are continuously damaged by these Russian attacks, weaponizing winter, targeting the power grid, trying to make civilians' lives miserable as the temperatures plunge ever colder and the official start of winter is just days away. Uh, even though in this instance, uh, the Ukrainians did shoot down, they say 13 uh, drones fired from Russia. These are Iranian-made uh, drones that explode upon impact. Uh, there were incidents just within the last week where some of the drones did make it through. For example, in the southern uh, Ukrainian region of Odessa, one and a half million people were plunged into darkness last weekend uh, when out of 15 drones that were launched by Russia, five of them did hit their targets. Uh, there is certainly welcome news here in Kiev at the uh, reporting by CNN that the Patriot missile defense systems will be arriving at some point in this country. But of course, that comes with its own set of challenges and risks, including threats from the Russians that this will make NATO and the United States complicit in escalating this war. Will Ripley, CNN, Kyiv. And to China now, where they're easing tight COVID restrictions after years of strict controls. Unfortunately, though, COVID is spreading with it. Our Selena Wang hit the streets of Beijing to find out how people are responding to both reopening and rising cases. China is starting to unravel its zero COVID policy. But instead of crowds out celebrating, this is how reopening is going in China. Closed shops, empty streets, people avoiding each other. Because for the first time since the start of the pandemic, COVID is spreading like wildfire in Beijing. People now either have COVID or they're scared to get it. So I just spoke to the shop worker in the store and he told me that he's the only employee without COVID, which is why he can still come to work. And he says, I am the only customer who has come into this store all day. The only crowds I'm seeing in Beijing outside of hospitals like this and pharmacies. So he says his fever's gone down, but he still has a cold, hoping to buy medicine, but he's worried they don't have any stock because there's these long lines forming outside of pharmacies across the country. People are trying to stock up, but stuff is selling out. You know, for years, China has been demonizing COVID, playing up the risks of long COVID. And now suddenly, state media is publishing headlines every day saying COVID is not a big deal. It's whiplash for a lot of people. Because just weeks before, if you got COVID, your whole community would have gone into hard lockdown. This is such a major and sudden change. So China is finally opening up. How yeah. do you feel about it? I feel it's pretty great. I wish they could have opened up earlier. Has business been very slow or difficult? Uh, you know, you can see uh, there, there are not that many customers. A lot of people just got the virus. Are you scared about getting COVID? I'm worried about my parents and my grandparents a little bit. People are relieved, though, that you no longer have to go to a quarantine facility if you get COVID. Getting sent to one of those rundown facilities was such a big source of anxiety before. And these health QR codes that have been used for years to track and dictate where we can go, well, the government is now saying that you don't need them to enter most public places. So I don't need to scan my code. It feels surreal, though, that I can literally just walk in. So she said I can only do online delivery, so you can't even sit inside or order inside in Shake Shack. 
So outside the Starbucks, they have a sign saying you need to show a 48 hour COVID test. Even though the national rules don't require it in Beijing, you still need a recent PCR test in order to enter restaurants, gyms and entertainment venues. There are way less places now to get COVID tests in the city, and the lines are short because most people are just staying at home. But just a week before, at this exact same location, this was packed with people waiting in line. So behind me is a graveyard of COVID testing booths. It's like almost overnight in Beijing. They removed all of these testing locations, and here's the remnants. After years of harsh lockdowns, the government is finally letting people manage their own health but people don't feel ready. And experts say the country isn't either. The country hasn't vaccinated enough of the elderly population and hasn't improved the healthcare capacity enough. So this reopening, it's going to continue to be messy and uneven. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. And a court hearing is taking place in Brussels over an alleged EU corruption probe. Greek MEP Eva Kaili was one of four people arrested last week. The European Parliament removed her as vice president on Tuesday. Belgian police are investigating allegations of payments made by Qatar to EU representatives. Joining us now is CNN's Anna Stewart. It's an astonishing and embarrassing, I think, corruption scandal for the European Parliament. It's also pretty complicated. Anna, can you make it simple for us? What do we know and what's happened? I can try my very best. There was a pre-trial hearing, or there was this morning, but we're actually not even sure if all four of those arrested appeared in that. But that was essentially to determine whether or not they will be remanded in custody or arrested. And they were arrested in relation to this investigation that's been going on for over four months now by Belgian federal prosecutors into allegations of corruption. The allegations being that EU officials within the parliament were paid for or received substantial gifts, essentially to give influence to a Gulf nation state. They didn't name it, but of course we have seen wide reports that this is Qatar and I can get onto their response uh, shortly. You are now looking at pictures though, related to the house raids, of huge amounts of cash that were recovered from raids of uh, hotel rooms, houses, apartments. You were looking at a suitcase, I think, uh, many cases. This is nearly one and a half million euros worth of cash recovered. Now, we know that Eva Kylie is one of the people that was arrested. She was one of the vice presidents of the European Parliament. She was uh, she had that title stripped from her yesterday following a vote. She's also been evicted from her political party in Greece, from her political party in the EU. We don't yet have confirmation for the other three names, but we have comment from her lawyer from yesterday. He said her position remains that she is innocent and that she has nothing to do with bribery from Qatar. Now, that brings me to Qatar. Qatar was not named by the Belgian uh, prosecutors as the country alleged to be buying influence in the EU. It has been widely named in media reports and by some EU officials, uh, for instance, from the Czechs. Uh, We have this from Qatar. They say the state of Qatar categorically rejects any accusations of misconduct. And they go on to say they think these claims are baseless and gravely misinformed. Now, all this hugely damaging for Qatar, not least they are hosting the World Cup right now, and allegations, of course, of human rights abuse. We know that as recently as November 21st, Ava Kylie, for one, actually defended Qatar on that front in a plenary session. It's interesting looking back at her, at back at her comments now. Um, and the reaction from the EU has been one, frankly, of shock. We had the president of the European Parliament earlier this week saying that the institution is under attack. We know several offices in Strasbourg have been sealed up by those investigating uh, all this going on. And it was very interesting from the president of the EU Parliament when she said Europe would rather be cold 
than bought, which certainly suggests perhaps that this could relate to the energy crisis that Europe finds itself in. Julia? Yes. Where were the checks and balances? There's going to be big questions asked, I think, and we'll continue to follow this story. CNN's Anna Stewart there. Thank you for that. Now, FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried has spent the night behind bars after a judge in the Bahamas denied him bail. He now faces extradition, of course, to the United States. Let's get straight to Carlos Suarez in Nassau, Bahamas, with the latest. Carlos, good to have you with us. He's obviously going to fight that extradition as well. He said yesterday, I believe, in, in court. No surprise, given the charges that he faces in the United States. What more do we know? That's... That's right, uh, Julia. Good morning. The 30-year-old, he spent his first full night in a Bahamian prison after a chief magistrate here in Nassau uh, denied him bail. Uh, The judge said that she had no decision or she had no uh, other way of putting it. She said uh, that she felt that uh, SBF had access to too much money and therefore he was a flight risk. And as you said, at the same extradition hearing, uh, SBF told the court that he was going to fight extradition to the U.S., And you can kind of understand why. If he's found guilty of the charges in the U.S., Bankman-Fried faces up to 115 years in prison. At that very same extradition hearing, the 30-year-old also told the court that he is taking several prescription drugs for a number of health issues, including uh, depression as well as insomnia and attention deficit disorder. Uh, His attorney was concerned uh, that if he was denied bail and was remanded to prison, that he would not be able to give, uh, would not be able access uh, some of these prescription drugs. Uh, The judge in the end said uh, that he was going to have access to a lot of these medications uh, once he was taken into custody. Again, right after that hearing yesterday, uh, he was allowed some time with his parents and as well as his attorneys, but then he was brought to this prison here where he's expected to remain until at least February. That's when his next scheduled court hearing is taking place with regards to his extradition to the U.S. Julia? We'll watch for more developments in this too. Carlos, great to have you with us. Thank you. Carlos Suarez there joining us from the Bahamas. Okay, straight ahead, the CEO of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, a critical player, of course, in the fight against the pandemic. After the initial emergency response, we'll talk about transitioning to the next stages. Plus, a bite-sized look at the future for Yum Brands, the CEO of the world's largest restaurant chain, joins us next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, has helped vaccinate half the world's children against some of the world's deadliest diseases. It's also played a crucial part in the COVAX initiative, shipping over 1.8 billion COVID vaccines around the world. And now it's looking to the future and beyond the emergency response to the pandemic. From 2024, and that date matters, Gavi plans to end support for vaccine delivery in 38 middle-income nations, though the 54 poorest nations of the world will still get access and help with delivery costs. The priority for the next year is on targeting at-risk populations and boosting coverage overall. Joining us now is Gavi CEO, Dr. Seth Berkeley. Dr. Berkeley. Seth, always a pleasure to have you on the show. I have to say, it's not often board meetings like this manage to break news. And the details here, the timing, the dates are vitally important to understand. Just explain what your future plans are. 
Well, well, first of all, um, just to thank you for having me on again and, and to say that the critical issue here is we want to make the, sure the world is continued to be prepared for um, COVID outbreaks. I know most people are tired of COVID and tired of the virus, but the virus I don't think is done with us. And so the critical issue here is how we make sure countries continue to get their coverage up, but particularly to focus on those high risk groups. So in 2023, we will continue the work we've been doing up until now, working with each country to get their vaccines up, um, but also to do boosters. And the good news is we're at 81% coverage of healthcare workers and 66% in the elderly. That's really too low. So this is going to be the focus. And what the board meeting was discussing is, should we be thinking about a longer term program? And the answer is, we don't know yet what the epidemiology is. But the idea would be that we would certainly continue through 24 and 25 providing vaccines for the lowest income countries. And for the higher low income countries, the ones you talked about, the idea would we would still make vaccines available. We would provide some subsidy for them, but we would have them cost share those vaccines. But no decision has firmly been taken. That was what the board was discussing. We will now go out and talk to countries as well as um, trying to understand better what the epidemiology is. Are we going to see a, a set of future waves going on as we've seen over the last few years? And how does that affect countries' desires to have vaccines? Yeah, I mean, this is the key. So just to be clear, once again, in 2023, you'll continue as you have been from 2024. Then it's a case of if some of these middle income nations want to access these vaccines, they can still do so at the sort of Gavis or the COVAX subsidised rate. Um, but you're not just going to automatically continue to follow the plan because we have to be in a situation when we transition from, and I know you've said this as well in, in recent days, the emergency response to the pandemic to, OK, what does the new normal look like in and you just add these COVID vaccines into a broader program for, for vaccinations around the world and for, for these kind of countries. I think the initial headlines suggested you were stepping away. And I think we have to be very, very clear that, and as you're saying, um, that's not the plan. What I want to ask, though, is, to your point, have you discussed with some of those middle-income nations, the likes of Indonesia, Egypt, for example, what that plan, at least, or the proposal for that plan in 2024 looks like? And are they comfortable with it? Well, well, the first thing is the, the unfortunate part of, of the misinformation that was put out yeah. of we're dropping them. No decision's been taken on that. The idea of discussing this at the board was to say what might make sense if the epidemiology stays the same. And so what we will do now is now that we've had a discussion with the board, we will go out and have the conversations with all the countries. And by the way, the point here is even in 24 and 25, we will still provide some financing, you know, we may even provide full financing if if it turns out that makes sense. But now we need to sit down with countries and have those discussions. What do they want to do? What does it look like on their side? What are the barriers to them? And lastly, the critical thing here is we've seen routine coverage drop about 5% over the last two years. We need to get that up. And, and one of the reasons it's dropped is because people are focused on delivering COVID vaccines. We need to make sure they deliver COVID vaccines and routine vaccines. And that's why getting it back into a routine system is so very important. 
Yeah, and I do want to talk to you about that. I just want to get a quick comment while we're talking about it, about Novavax, which was one of the producers of, of the COVID vaccine. And I don't know what you can tell me now, because I'm sure much of this is with the lawyers, but you obviously paid a lot of money to them up front. And what you've said in, in as a consequence of um, perhaps we can call it the, the sort of disagreement between you and them is that they were never going to be prepared on time to provide the vaccines that you required. And as a result, you want some of the money back. It sort of makes sense to me. And I think to those looking at this, what can you tell us about about that um, disagreement, if anything? Well, I think you've you've basically said about what I can say, Julia. The issue is um, uh, Novavax said um, that we had breached the agreement with them, um, and we were quite clear that um, we had not breached uh, breached any obligations under our agreement with them, and that they had had these regulatory delays, and therefore um, um, it was clear that they wouldn't be able to meet their commitments and. Um, as a result, um, we expect them to um, return the advance payments that that were made. Um, and that's where we stand right now. And and um, we will continue with following that up. Yeah, I mean, that there's a balance somewhere between being paid for intellectual property and research, but also for the work that you guys do to get vaccines around the world. And um, while we wait for a decision on that, I do want to move on to the future. I saw that you've announced support for the first malaria vaccine, which actually that gives me goosebumps given the number of, of children, young people in particular that we lose around the world to that. You've also, I believe, been delivering or agreed to deliver cholera vaccines to Lebanon as well. In addition to all the things that we've discussed, uh, the vaccines for, for diseases that I know, um, polio, measles that, that dropped off to some degree in the pandemic. And we have to get back up to speed with these two. You're absolutely right. And one of the challenges is we're living in a new era because of climate change, because of overpopulation, because of the movements of people, we're going to see more and more outbreaks. And, and so what we have to do is be prepared to get routine vaccinations back up to a very high level to protect against diseases, but also to be prepared for new ones. We have three um, uh, public health emergencies of international concern right now, um, COVID, um, MPOX, um, oh. as well as um, polio. And of course, we're just finishing an Ebola outbreak in Uganda and cholera outbreaks across the world. And so it has become more challenging for countries. And the good news is countries have built resilient health systems, resilient immunization systems, but we really have to beef those up so that they're prepared to provide interventions whenever it's necessary to try to control these infections. After all, vaccines are the most cost-effective way to prevent disease, and therefore we want to make sure they can be made available everywhere that they are needed. Yeah, and, and to your point, I know you wrote an op-ed about this as well, the impact of climate change on, on healthcare outcomes and, and that shift and actually using the, the COVAX model that's been created here perhaps to try and tackle some of those. And it's something I want to get you on to talk about specifically again. But what I did notice in the minutes from that board meeting as well was manufacturing capabilities across sub-Saharan Africa in particular, and perhaps what we learned from, from the pandemic and the need to boost that in the coming years to protect perhaps against the next pandemic and provide them with the capabilities to keep step with what's produced in the West. That's going to be a priority too, I believe, and an important one. Yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. So let me just uh, uh, elaborate a little bit on that. Mm. So um, the really amazing news is uh, we had a COVID vaccine in 327 days. I mean, most yeah. people were predicting <laughs> five, six, seven years. Great news. But yeah. at the same time, people predicted that there would be two to three billion doses maximum capacity in 2021. And we ended up with over 11 billion doses produced. So the good news is people were able to scale that manufacturing. The bad news was we had a lot of nationalism and therefore countries were shutting down and not sharing. And so we ended up, if you look at Africa, Africa absorbs a lot of vaccine. It has a large population and yet only 0.1% of the world's vaccine are made on the African continent. And so rightly so, African leaders said, well, yes, it's true that there's enough vaccine around the world, but in an emergency, we have to have the capability to produce our own. And so there is an effort now to try to build capacity. And of course, that has to be capacity that works all the time. In peacetime, it has to produce regular vaccines right. so that in a pandemic, it's ready to pivot to the pandemic. And so it's about making sustainable systems there and making sure they fit in the ecosystem globally so that they can you know, be viable um, during peacetime in selling vaccines to Africa, but also to the rest of the world. And that's what we're going to be working on. I mean, you have a lot of uh, competing causes to tackle. Thank you for your work and thank you for your time today and um, our chance to, to set the record straight on perhaps some of the miscommunication over your plans for the future. Dr. Seth Berkeley, sir, thank you so much, as always, the Gavi CEO. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. We'll speak soon. More First Move after this. Welcome back to First Move and a cautious open on Wall Street this Wednesday as expectors, investors not likely to place any major bets until the Fed announces its latest rate hike and Fed Chair Jay Powell takes questions, of course, too, from the media. A half point interest rate rise is expected today after four straight jumbo hikes of three quarters of a percent. The hope is that inflation continues to ease in the new year, allowing the Fed to completely wrap up its rate hike campaign inflation, of course, and its effect on consumers front and centre on the minds of fast food chains like Yum! Brands. Shares of Yum! holding up well in challenging times, up nearly 20% over the past six months. Famous for brands that include KFC, Taco Bell and Pizza Hut, the world's largest restaurant chain by store count, operates more than 54,000 restaurants across 155 different countries and territories. 98% of them are owned by franchisees. And I sat down with Yum! CEO David Gibbs at the New York Stock Exchange on Tuesday as the company held an investor day. I started the interview by asking him what his message was to investors. Well, we had a great meeting with the investment community today. And as you said, we talked a little bit about what's happened over the last 25 years, right. because it is our anniversary of being a public company, 25 years. During those 25 years, we outperformed the S&P 500 by a factor of five wow. times. So great chapter of growth in the rearview mirror, but of course we're a team that is looking forward, not backwards. So one of the exciting things we share today is that we're raising our guidance as we go forward to guide and we're growing faster than we did during those 20, last 25 years based on two things, our progress on digital and technology and the ramp up in development. Yeah, I was going to say, the, the question to me instantly there was, OK, that was great. Now what? It's not just about the growth, though, that you're talking about raising targets for. It's also about the operating profitability, because this is crucial too. whatever phase of, of growth you're in for a company and however big you are. Of course, our business is a franchise business. Right. Remember, we're 98 percent owned by franchisees. 
We wake up every day concerned about our franchisees' profitability. Because if they're not making money, the business grinds to a halt. Thankfully, they're doing really well right now. And when they make money and unit economics makes sense, they build a lot more stores. And that's why you're seeing the growth that we're having right now on the development front, because they're very confident in the future of the company and they're getting great returns from building new stores. I mean, this is one of the things that blew me away, just listening to some of the statistics. And I'll give it to you. You're opening a new store every two hours. This is franchisees opening new stores. Let's be clear, it's their capital, it's their investment. Is the big sort of longer term vision still to have a further 100,000 plus restaurants open around the world and I'm doing this with wide eyes. Yeah, well we talked a lot about what could be for our company and if you look at the math, you know, some of the numbers are astonishing. The reality is sometimes investors are concerned that maybe we're running out of opportunities. Nothing could be further from the truth. We have so much white space to build new units all around the world and you're seeing that in the numbers now starting to be reflected as we ramp up development. Even though we've got brands that are 50, 60, 70 years old, their best days are ahead of them. I mean, you have some of the most recognizable restaurant brands in the world, KFC, uh, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, for example. I mean, I think just about anybody, wherever you are in the world, has seen one of these restaurants at, at one time or another, and you're operating across, what, 155 different countries. I think for me, and the conversation almost has to split into the third of your business that's in the United States and then the two-thirds of the business that's outside of the United States, even just on a basic level to talk about growth. I mean, I was looking at some of the, the stats for India, for the Middle East. I mean, KFC, the growth that you're seeing there just to pick one brand and sort of a couple of locations is again, astonishing to use the word. We're excited because our growth is widespread. It's not a pocket of growth lifting our business. It's widespread across multiple countries. But as you said, we have a couple of areas that are really on fire, like India, for example. Just over the last 12 months, we built 400 new units in India. We're now at 15, 1,600 stores in India and growing fast. We're going to grow even faster from there. So lots of excitement about India. How big might that get? I mean, do you even have sort of a target for how many restaurants you can open in the next one, two years, for example? Then? Well, what we guided today was that you know, our, our target for development is 5% of our store base, which is a good, healthy number for a, brand, a business of our size. Um, but of course, we have the mindset of relentlessly pursuing growth. No target is a stopping point for anybody in our company, I can assure you of that. We are always looking to beat every target we and have. And so if a franchisee comes to you and says, look, we think this is a great opportunity wherever I'm in the world, we can use India for an example. What kind of process do you go through to say this is somebody that we trust to open a franchise? Because it's still your brand, even if it's their capital. This is something, particularly at this time, in an economic cycle where perhaps there are greater challenges, be it inflation, be it capital availability, wherever you are in the world for the most part, how are those decisions? Well, made? you're exactly right. The most important decisions we make are who do we want to partner right. with. We have 1,500 franchisees around the world. We are really proud of our franchisees and the capabilities that they bring to the table. Our franchisee base is a little bit different than others in our space. They're much larger. So our average franchisee has about 35 stores compared to a lot of other brands where you might have five stores per franchisee. That means they have more capabilities, they have more access to capital, you know, they can build a professional organization to grow their business. That served us well during these uncertain times. Okay, so that's a critical factor. So even if you don't necessarily have a perfect sense of the market, they do in terms of what their business can sustain in terms of growth. Exactly. That's why we have the franchising model. We have these local partners that are you know, tapped into what's going on in their market, their consumers, how to navigate the challenges. And I think part of the reason why we've been so successful over the last few years with all the challenges thrown our way. I mean, and there's been some great deal, a deal of amount of them. Um, let's be clear. What about China? Because we're talking about China a lot 
on the show in terms of the relaxation of COVID restrictions. I mean, the restrictions on consumers, the shift to uh, online delivery, whatever it is for, for a restaurant business has been incredibly challenging for, for businesses and for individuals. Is there opportunity here? Are you still cautious? What, what's your uh, We're enormously excited about China, as we have been since the day we entered. Obviously, given the population size and the growth we've had there, we're really, you know, the leading restaurant band, brands by a mile in China. Right. Um, as you know, we separated out our China business into a licensed uh, organization that we still have a relationship with them, but they run that business. They're a publicly traded company, also on the New York Stock Exchange. So we try not to co- comment intra-quarter too much on what's going of on course. there. But we are very confident in the management team that is on the ground running that business and how they're navigating all the extreme challenges that they're facing. One of the things that you know demonstrates the skill that they have is just how many stores they've been building just over the last few years despite these challenges. So they've stayed true to their mission to grow their business. They're getting great results from building stores. Uh, and we're very confident in the future of China. Yeah, it comes down to your point, I think, once again, about trusting the management and trusting the people on the ground making these decisions. Okay, we have to talk about food price inflation. We have to talk about labor costs as well. But I want to do the thing that I mentioned earlier in the interview. Let's break it down and talk United States specifically, and then we can perhaps talk about the rest of the world. Talk to me about what your franchisees are saying about managing those costs and perhaps what they're saying about the outlook, what you feel about the outlook. Certainly that's part of the challenge of operating in this environment, some stuff that we haven't seen typically. But we're getting through this and uh, tremendously successfully. You can see in the Taco Bell business, for example, in the U.S., if you want to break down the U.S., Taco Bell in the U.S., their margins today are the same as they were before the pandemic. Now, that's despite enormous inflation on food costs and on labor. Uh, they've been able to pay, uh, figure out ways to save money in other parts of the business, to shore up the P&L, and to pass on some price increases to consumers and still remain an incredible value. Uh, we shared today how strongly sales are up at Taco Bell. Uh, so we can navigate just about any environment in our business. That's one of the beauties of our, in, our business and particularly you know, our brands is that we can navigate inflationary, recessionary times, you name it, and adjust our business to thrive because we're always there for consumers. If, if they don't have a lot of money in their pocket, they can still have a great experience at our brands. But as you pointed out, it comes down to that value proposition, which is that the ethos of, of this kind of um, sort of restaurant brand and obviously as diverse as you are. Um, just very quickly, do you expect to see some of the easing, whether it's labor costs or, or food price inflation, into 2023, or is it just a well, lack of visibility? We've commented a couple of times that we do think we're past the peak when it comes to the inflationary pressures, and I guess today's CPI numbers may have uh, confirmed that. So we're feeling a lessening of labor pressures and a, lessen- and a reduction in our uh, pressures on our food costs. Uh, so, um, so we're optimistic about 2023, but we're prepared for any scenario. That's the beauty of our team is we can thrive in any environment as long as we're prepared. Yum, celebrating its 25th anniversary with lots of enthusiasm about the future. And from KFC and Taco Bell to what you might call the Tagines and Tartatin World Cup semifinals. Morocco and France battling it out later today. More than just a culinary clash, of course. Whoever wins today's match gets a ticket to Sunday's all-important World Cup finals. Time again for today's Chatley Cup 2, our ongoing look at how the stock markets of rival teams stack up. And in today's face-off, both French and Moroccan 
stocks are hardly piping hot. The Cat Caron down some 6% over in France this year. Morocco doing worse. In fact, its market's on an even lower boil, down 15% since January. And Amanda Davis joins us now from Doha. Amanda, I saw you earlier whooping it up with some very excited Morocco fans, and we have to talk about that game. But we should also hand it to Argentina and, and Messi too, announcing this is officially his last World Cup. Yeah, I mean, I I always think there's a caveat with that. He says, as far as he is concerned from last night, Sunday is his last game in an Argentina shirt at a World Cup. But you just never know, do you? I mean, we've seen evidence of what he was doing last night. He absolutely can still perform it and still doing it. But if he was to lead Argentina that one step further to the victory on Sunday, you could absolutely understand why he might decide, age 35 years of age, having won the one trophy he hasn't won uh, to finally call it a day. But it was such a privilege, Julia. You know, I am I get to go to some of the biggest and best sporting events in the world and see the biggest stars do what they do. But last night, in that context, seeing Messi with those moments of brilliance, it really was something special. And you could see just how much it meant to him and to his teammates. They are working so fantastically as a unit. Their confidence has built and grown since that opening defeat to to Saudi Arabia. And you can understand why the fans were confident uh, after the game last night. But there's a whole lot of Moroccan fans uh, collecting in the souk here behind us. And, and they are keen to, to cause an upset at this party. Yes, I, I'm so excited. I, I mean, I'm so excited about the final, whichever way it goes, because I think to your point, teams is the word here. They really are all of these teams now playing in incredible fashion, I think. Um, what's your bet on the match later? Do you think Morocco can do this? I, yeah, I mean, I think the romantics would love, I know, I know. Uh, wouldn't they, Morocco to do it. And their fans have travelled in their numbers and what it means, not just for them as a country, but for Africa, for the Arab nations here in the first Middle Eastern World Cup. It you know, really is a script that the tournament organisers would have loved to have written as much as uh, Morocco themselves. They've defied the odds from the word go even if they haven't surprised themselves. You know, this is a team that have confidence. That is what Waleed Bagrawi, when he came in just three months uh, ahead of the start of the tournament, instilled in this team. Uh, France say they're going to be given a run for their money. Morocco will absolutely be trying their hardest. We'll see. Amanda Davis, looking forward to it. You're lucky to be there. Thanks for joining us there from Doha. And that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. Marketplace Asia is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 